You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. We're going to begin uh, this morning a new series. We, I like to go through books of the Bible, and we try and go through different books at different times, and we finished one of the letters in the Bible, Ephesians. We're going to go to the Old Testament, and we're going to go to the book of Job, and uh, Job chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Ten years ago, I uh, looked at this in this congregation. Most of you weren't here then. I'm not going to uh, repeat what I did then, because there's a whole lot more uh, things that have happened. The book of Job doesn't sound really exciting. Again, you may just be visiting here, and when you go through the book of Job, it's actually quite depressing, right? It's, it's a story, very simple story. First two chapters tell the story, third chapter tells the story, and in between, the remaining 39 chapters is poetry, which basically says, woe is me, why are all these bad things happening to me? And Job's friends come along and say, they're happening to you because you're a rotten sinner. And he has an argument. So it's really, it's, an, it's a poem, but it, it, it deals with major, major, major issues. If you read Job on your own, if you read Job on its own, out with the context of the Bible, and out with the context of Jesus Christ, it can be a, an incredibly hard book. I still think it's a hard book, but I love it because it's such a real book, and it's describing uh, a real situation. By the way, I apologize for my voice. I've been talking too much, and uh, that was, I, I told some of you this, that I went to see um, the ENT surgeon, and he said, uh, David, we've had a look down your throat, and um, everything's fine. There's no scarring. You've got, he says, the bottom line is, trouble is you talk too much. So... <laughs> I've been told that by the surgeon, so it's true, but I was talking a lot yesterday and um, singing this morning, but hopefully be able to stick with it. Now, Job, I, I, you know, it'd probably take us about 24 weeks to go through Job. I'm going to balance that in the evenings by looking at uh, 2 Corinthians. But I really, to me, this is an incredibly beautiful and incredibly moving and an incredibly, paradoxically, joyful book, because it deals with reality. And really, what we should be doing in church, is it not, should we not be dealing with reality? This is not some kind of escape. This is not a spiritual version of EastEnders. This is reality. So let's go to Job chapter 1, and let's read verses 1 to 5. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 5,000 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. 
This book is written around 3,000 years ago, and it is about a human being. It is extraordinary that a book that's written 3,000 years ago is so directly applicable to us. Immediately when you, you look at those words on the screen, or you look at them in, in your Bibles, a story about a man who lived in the land of us, that sounds like the Wizard of Oz. A story about a man who owned 500 donkeys and oxen and large number of servants and sacrifices and so on. You think, well, what does that have to do with me when I go to work tomorrow morning? What does that have to do with me when I'm studying for my exams? What does that have to do with me when I go to school? What does that have to do with me when I'm uh, coping with uh, sickness and so on? Well, it's because it does answer some of the big, big big questions, or at least ask them in a way that we can resonate with. with. For example, why is it that one person seems to be doing really well and another suffers? Some of you here this morning, you're rejoicing in the good news of a friend who's just got engaged, who's just had a child born, a new job, a new house. But others of you are struggling because you've got a friend who's just been told they've got cancer, or their child is seriously ill, or they've lost their job, or their house has been repossessed. And you think, and we can't help but think this, why did they deserve this, and why did they deserve that? And that's what Job really looks at. Why in this life we have so many experiences which are both good and bad? How does it work? How does life work? How does the world work? How does the universe work? So it's kind of, this is mega big picture stuff but done in extraordinary, beautiful detail. In fact, at the back there, uh, Owen, is, is Owen Daly here, by the way, somewhere? He's over there. Owen, in fact, come on up here and tell us what your project is, please. You can help me in the sermon. <laughs> I just, I can't explain it. So you can tell, it, you can tell us what that project is. It's good for people to see, so. Nice to be prepared, isn't it? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I just... Well, um, how do you des- describe Ponce art in five words or so? Um, okay. It's a map. It's a map based on a map of love done in the 1700s by a printmaker from Leipzig in Germany. So, how do you... Um, so, the map, the original map is a whimsical map. It's something which was poetic... It was expressing different states of love associated with different places on the map. That's the original idea. Not a, a unique idea. It's commonly done. There's a big tradition of carton dress, as they call it in, in art. But there um, we have taken people's individual encounters from um, the conference yesterday. I asked people, could they share... You know, in the way that um, the Old Testament patriarchs did, they had... Um, Often when in an encounter with the Lord, they would put down a stone, a milestone in their journey, in the ground. And so they were on this pilgrimage, if you like, poetically speaking, a journey that God was taking them on. Like Jacob was running away from a very awful situation. And God met him there. And he was so amazed to have met God in a particular geographical place, in a particular point of time. They thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. So... That, I thought, was a really significant thing, that God meets us in place and time in our own encounters. You read the Old Testament narratives, 
uh, the New Testament narratives as people in their ordinary situations of life, family life, sickness, ill health, joyful situations, and so on. So I thought, well, if you think of the kind of culture we're in, scientific method says, you know, these are intangible things. You cannot prove these. Um, but scripture is full of personal experience of people's encounter with God. And I thought, well, does that still happen today? Do people have these milestone experiences in their own life? What are they? Can we make something, you know, to paraphrase Hebrews, can we take something which is, um, you know, a substance of things unseen, evidence of things unseen? So that's what the project is about in a way. It's about showing that art in one sense can make that visible. Um, but also, as believers, I think it's useful to know. So I, we had a massive amount of contributions there. And so all the paths, if you go and look at the map, you'll see that all the paths are the stories which people have contributed yesterday. I don't edit them. I just ask people to contribute. What was significant? Where did it happen? And when did it happen? And all the paths are mapped out across the drawing. So you're taking a map of love and flipping it on its head. You're saying, here's a domain where God's love is evident. And uh, it's not complete yet, but it's there. So. Great. Thank you. I'm sorry for springing it on you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's exactly, in a sense, what Job is. It's a story of his encounter with God in the most extreme of circumstances, actually. The book itself is one of the most extraordinary pieces of literature in human history. It is incredibly beautiful, uh, intelligent, and so on. There is no comparable work in Middle East literature. It's a play, a drama, a poem. Um, as I said, most of it is poetry. And when we say poetry, Owen used a word there that some of us think, oh, poetry, ponzi, and so on. Actually, poetry is what we have all the time. We've just sung poetry. Psalm 22 is extraordinary poetry. Poetry is artistry with words. It's the use of sounds as well as structure and meaning. Hebrew poetry in particular uses rhythms and rhymes. It's irregular. It's not right, that's that's what we do. But in Hebrew it's irregular. And yet it it translates really, really well. So let me kind of introduce this in, in, in asking two questions that we can apply to ourselves. One is in terms of the who of Job. You'll, you'll see on the screen there. He lived in the land of Uz, or it could be Huz, H-U-Z. Uh, nobody really knows where that is. It's named after a person because the territories around that time, uh, nomadic tribes, you could find the lands changing. The kind of fixed states that we now have are not something that uh, they were used to then. But we know that uh, Job's family had settled down. They were no longer nomadic. They had houses. Uh, it was possibly where we now consider Gaza, though most likely on the edge of the desert of Arabia, as is mentioned also in Jeremiah and Lamentations. Uh, probably Job belonged to a, a tribe called the Uzites, which sounds great, or the Huzites, which probably sounds even better. Uh, somebody has suggested that instead of the Wild West, this would be called the Wild East. Uh, living right on the edge of what would then be considered civilization. The important thing about that is Job is not an Israelite. It's not describing here Job as uh, a Jew. This is describing somebody, a human being, from 3,000 years ago who had this encounter with God. 
His name is slightly unusual. Uh, there's another name that you would use for Job. This one is Eob, and it means, and you wouldn't really want this name, the person who's been hard done by, the person who's been harshly dealt with. So most people think that it was a name that was given to him after these events happened, that his name was probably something else before then. A bit like um, Saul changed his name to Paul. Either that or the name was given to him prophetically. None of you would really want to name your children, uh, hi, here's my son, the one who is harshly done by. Um, That's not the name that we would do. In the small snippet that we have and later on in the book, we'll see that he comes across as an incredibly uh, attractive personality. In fact, in the text there, it says he was blameless and upright, not meaning that he never sinned. You go through the book and you'll see it says that he sinned and he admits that, but that he was complete. That carries the idea of someone who was straight, someone who was down the line, someone who uh, was honest. Um, He had all the qualities that you would look for in a friend, in a good neighbor, in a boss or a workmate, a politician, and so on. He was somebody who was honest. He had personal integrity. So, the important point about that is, here's a good guy, and he gets really hammered. He gets really, really hammered. He's a a man also who is wise. Now, Job belongs to a, a group of literature, mostly poetic books, in the middle of the Old Testament known as the wisdom books. And they are there to teach us They are the art of living well in harmony with the principles on which God has made the universe. There are two aspects of that in Job that we see here. One is that he was devout. He feared God. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Maybe you're here at university, and you're, you're here to learn. You're here to have fun. You're here to be educated, and so on you will never get true wisdom until you come to know and to serve and to honor and to fear and to love God through Jesus Christ. Education without that is not actually ultimately really helpful. There's a a marvelous uh, quote that comes from a man called Vishal Mangalwadi in his book, The, the Book That Made Your World. And uh, in that, he says, I'm paraphrasing him a little bit, he says this, we had engineers, uh, a man is a child, a psychologist who is writing saying, I am a survivor of a concentration camp, a concentration camp that were built by engineers who were well-educated, that were manned by university graduates with doctors, qualified doctors, who administered poisons to children. And the man then goes on to say, please don't tell me that teaching people writing, reading, arithmetic, and education is in and of itself a good thing. You could just be teaching them how to do harm. And he states, this man was on a Christian, he states, can we not please educate people to be better human beings? Well, the book of Job is doing that. It's telling us how to be better human beings. And part of that, a foundational part of that, is that we fear God. Now, that's not trembling, frightened, coward, 
suppression. It is just living in the knowledge that God exists. It is reverence. It is awe. It is submission. It is putting God first. Job never speaks about God in, or to God in a flippant manner. He says things that are wrong. He says things that are ignorant. But he always, is acknowledge, he always acknowledges that God is supreme, that God is sovereign, that God is beyond him, that God is to be worshipped. And I want to say this, that there are many, many, many people who profess to be religious, who say they're not atheists, who say they believe in God, but their lives, they might as well be atheists. They are what we call functional atheists. In other words, for the Christian, the challenge is here, what difference does it make when you go to work tomorrow morning, what difference does it make that you are a Christian? Does it make any difference at all? What difference does it make when you get out of your bed? At the conference yesterday, um, we, had, we had a great wee panel afterwards, and uh, Mez McConnell, who uh, was just superb, of course, as Mez always is, was asked, uh, I asked them all, what does Jesus mean to you? And Mez's answer was basically, he's the reason I get out of bed in the morning. It's a great answer. What's the reason you get out of bed in the morning? Leap out with joy, or at least drag yourself out and eventually come to the joy point. He feared God. He was also moral. He shunned evil. He turned away from things that were wrong and things that were evil. And those are two great principles. Now, I don't think that we can fulfill them without coming to Jesus Christ and without receiving the Holy Spirit to aid us, but those are great principles for living. Job also was a wealthy man. See, up there he had uh, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels. Incidentally, when you look up there, you'll notice something interesting. I hadn't noticed this before, uh, but someone pointed it out to me. There's no horses. And in all cultures in the world, for about 2,500 years, horses have been the means by which you, you judge somebody's wealth. Horses and cattle. Cattle are there. Why were there no horses? Because this book is so old that at that point, horses had probably not been domesticated. It's probably about 2,500 years ago that in this area, actually, in Arabia, uh, Arabian horses and stallions and so on, they began to be domesticated. And in fact, you'll see there, he's got camels, which indicates that he either lived in the desert or on the edge of the desert. But he was incredibly wealthy. Now, again, the Bible does not condemn Job. It doesn't say because he's wealthy, he was a bad man. In fact, you'll find that some of his friends begin to suggest to him that that is the case. Our culture almost worships wealth. The Bible does not say if you're wealthy, you are evil, but the Bible does say that wealth is incredibly dangerous. So Zacchaeus was a wealthy man. He needed to come to Jesus and to repent and to pay back what he had stolen from people in false taxation. Ananias and Sapphira in the early church lied about their wealth and kept money for themselves and were punished. Luke 12, 15, Jesus says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. People looked at Job, and as we will see uh, next week, the devil accused Job and said, he's only religious, he's only righteous, he only follows God because he's got all this wealth. Life is easy for him. But a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, and Job was to lose all those possessions. 
John Wesley put it beautifully, I think, a great motto for a Christian. Gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. There's a mentality in our culture, isn't there, which says, the world owes me, the state owes me, you owe me. I want this from you. I want this. I need this. You know what the Christian attitude is? The Christian attitude is, I'm going to work with my hands to provide for myself and for other people. Being enterprising, being hardworking, these are things that uh, we can learn as well. It was interesting, again, with Mez, he gave the example of one of the people he's worked with who has cost the state two and a half million pounds, at least, two and a half million pounds in all the costs in terms of looking after them and, and dealing with their addictions and dealing with their crime. And he said, that man is now contributing to society, paying taxes, doing, you know, and it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful thing to be able to do that. And some of you will have a mentality which says, gimme, 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 gimme. Even as Christians, you've kind of bought into that whole thing. And Paul in the New Testament is so strong against that. He's really strong and he says, well, you work hard with your own hands so that you can provide for other people. Well, that's what Job did. He had wealth. He also had family. He had seven sons and three daughters. And here it describes birthday parties that they had. That's at least what people think they are. Uh, feasting, we're told in verse uh, 4. They took turns holding feasts in their homes, and probably they were associated with feast days, birthdays. He had a great family, but again, Job didn't do what so many of us do, which is idolize our families, make them idols, put them up and say, that's, you know, that's what I live for. I live for my family. It's very easy to do. It's funny, isn't it? I'll tell you this as a preacher right now. I can stand and preach to you and say to you, you are a horrible sinner and you're probably going to go to hell and you're going to, and you'll just take it. But I come to you and I say, you know, your child's a wee brat and I wish you'd control them. That's me dead. You're, <laughs> there's no way you're going to let me away with that. Now, I wouldn't do either of those two things, actually, but it does indicate sometimes what we get really wound up about. Don't touch the apple of my eye. We're quite happy to let God be blasphemed, but don't say anything about my family. Well, Job had a very realistic view of his family. He didn't stop them having parties, but he would send and have them purified. And that was a, a form of ritual right from um, the time that Adam and Eve fell, right from Cain and Abel, you were getting burnt offerings, sacrifices being made for human sin. In this culture, the patriarchal culture that existed in Job's time, the head of the household, the father, was also considered as a priest within his family. Job's religion was inward and spiritual, as we will see, but he also recognized the need for it to be expressed outwardly. And this was his regular habit. He had a regular habit of going, sacrificing for his children, praying for his children, doubtless teaching his children, being with his children. Martin Luther, one of his 95 theses, that the whole life of believers should be one of repentance. That was Job's life. It was one of repentance for himself and for his family. And you'll notice right at the end there in, in that section, his reason for doing so, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Now, why that is particularly poignant 
is that is the very sin that the devil tried to get Job to commit. It's the sin that his wife said to him, curse God and die. It's the sin that we get pushed towards. I say of the new atheists that their motto is, there is no God and I hate him. But for some of us as Christians, our motto can be, there is a God and I'm scared of him. Not in the biblical way that Job was, but I'm scared of him, I'm frightened of him, I dislike him. It It can become like that. Job didn't give in to any of that. He lived in wealth, comfort, and worship. But the storm clouds were coming. And for some of us, the storm clouds have already come. And doubtless, the storm clouds will continue to come. I want to look just very briefly at some of the questions. And as I say, we will be going through these because they keep, it's a theme that runs through the whole book. The why and how of suffering because it is a story of a man who loses everything he has except his life and then is faced with answering and asking why. Now, the question, why is there suffering, is a question that in all cultures we face, especially perhaps in ours. We work on this model. What we do is you list the problems, you identify the cases, you propose the solutions, and someone will fix it. Someone is going to fix. Whatever problem we have, it's going to be fixed. Coldplay's song, Fix You, is actually, I would have that as a kind of theme song for this whole book. Because it's really saying Job's friends are trying to fix him, they can't fix him. The people around him try to fix him, they can't fix him. He tries to fix himself, he can't be fixed. Job's friends have a very simple answer to him you suffer because of your sin. It's a wrong answer. The book itself does not accept what we call polytheism, view of many gods, different gods battling with one another, nor does it, does it accept what we call a, a closed universe view that God doesn't interfere. These, are, these things just happen, God has nothing to do with it. It doesn't say that. It acknowledges that there is no limit to the power and goodness of God. So how do we deal with this problem of suffering then, if that is true? Do we just say it'll all work out in heaven? But no, that's not what Job deals with. Job deals with how to deal with suffering now, how to cope with suffering now. And actually, the question, why is there suffering, is almost never asked and never answered in the book. It's more, how do I cope with suffering? I can't understand the why, but how do I cope? Is suffering always deserved? The whole answer of the book is no. Suffering may be deserved. I drive in my car 120 miles, I drive into a wall, Well, I can't expect to be immune from the consequences of that. But it is not always the case that suffering is directly involved. Again, you may be here this morning, and you may be suffering right now, and you're thinking, what have I done? What have I done? And it may be that you've done nothing. You may be suffering for many different reasons. In the words of REM, everyone hurts. Everyone. You can't escape that. And being a Christian does not give you an immunity to suffering. Acts 14, verse 22, up on the screen Paul went around strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Job asks, how do I suffer? Paul says in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. And so that becomes the question of submission to the sovereignty 
and the goodness of God. In all of this, the question is not why am I suffering, but what do I think about God in the midst of my suffering? If you're prosperous in good health and things are going well, do you say, I deserve this? Of course I deserve this. I've got this by my own hand. Or if your circumstances are circumstances of despair, what do you think of God? Do you think God is punishing you? Do you think that God is unjust or unfair? Do you think that God doesn't care about you? Tozer says this, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. Job did not curse God. I think the best interpretation of it all is found in the New Testament. In James 5, verse 10, brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Take that last sentence, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. I don't know your personal circumstances. I know enough about human beings and have enough experience to know that some of you are here and you're just, you're, you know, things are great. You've had a, a great week, a great year, things look great ahead, and you're very happy with things. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Thank Him for all His good gifts to you but they are merciful. They're not things that you've earned or you deserve. And you cannot rely on them. You cannot make them idols. There are others of you who are here and you're full of doubt and fear, bitterness perhaps, anger, frustration, concern, worry, anxiety. Ill health makes you conscious of your own weakness. Financial difficulties make you realize how weak your, your, your bank account is. Struggles at work, depression, so many different things. And you need to know about everything else. You don't need to know why. You don't need to know how is all this going to work out in the end. You need to know that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. How much? We'll take communion this evening. And that's Psalm, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me, says Jesus. The Lord is so full of compassion and mercy that He sent His own Son to experience such suffering on your behalf that at one point in His life, He questioned God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that you and I would not be forsaken. I think that's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful truth. Now, Job saw it. Later on in the book, there's this marvelous phrase where he's questioning and questioning and questioning, and then he says, but I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. How is it possible for a man 1,500 years before Jesus to grasp that his only hope was to have a Redeemer who lived. It's just incredible revelation from God. 
we also have that incredible revelation, and we have who Jesus is. So, when you read, in the land of us, there lived a man whose name was Job. It's not a fairy story. It's not an irrelevant story. It's not a story that you you go away and say, well, what does that have to do with me? It has everything to do with every aspect of your life. Because in that land, by that man, we learn about how we can live and how we can cope by coming to know and to love and to serve Jesus Christ. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we are broken people who live in the midst of a broken society. We come to you with all the paradoxes of our life that we hurt, yet we rejoice. We laugh, yet we weep. We love, yet we get angry. We experience incredible beauty, and yet sometimes hatred fills us. Our God, we come to you and we seek your forgiveness and mercy, your compassion. We thank you for what we have uh, read about in these few verses, in the story of a man who loved you, knew you, served you over 3,000 years ago. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit has granted us this story. He inspired it, and that this is your word that you speak to us today as directly and as clearly as if it was revealed from heaven the first time. We bless you for that, and may it be for each one of us that as we go from this place, whatever the circumstances of our life, whatever the joys, the pains, the sorrows, that we would not be those who curse you but we would be those who bless you and that we know that you are full of compassion and mercy. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Dot .org Thanks for listening.